as the kids are gathering in the back, you can turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Now, if you're wondering, is there a place in the Bible that speaks most clearly about the nature of the church? I would point you to the book of Ephesians. Now, the book of Ephesians is not a book of church order. We're in a series on polity, right? This polity series on governance, how is our church structured? The Bible isn't a how-to manual on, on polity. That's not how the Bible is structured. But the book of Ephesians gives its attention to that. And so we're going to look this morning at Ephesians 4, and that's going to be kind of our springboard as we continue this series. But before we do that, I'm going to begin with a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus your precious Son, who is the head and great authority in your church. Lord, we come in His name because we are a part of His body. We come in His name because Jesus is our head. We come in His name because we have been purchased and redeemed and gathered in as your possession, your people, to bear your name. And so we ask in the name of Jesus, in the name of our head, to feed us this morning. Feed us by your word. Feed us through the grace of preaching. And Lord, we ask that in everything that is said this morning, in the conviction that comes to our hearts, the encouragement that we, that we sense, the way that we walk out of here with a deeper desire to apply your word and live in light of it, we ask in all of those things that you would bring glory to our head. Bring glory and fame and honor to the name of Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, I was thinking about our polity series this morning, and it actually reminded me of high school. And high school specifically in regards to government class. Now, in my high school, nobody really wanted to take government class, with a few exceptions of some folks that were like me and sort of kind of like the nerdy history guys. So even at a young age, I was sort of into history, and so I kind of got this strange joy out of going to government class. But by and large, the other 90% of my classmates were in government class because they had to be in government class, which kind of begged the question, why did they have to be in government class? Why were they forcing the kid two rows behind me, who was going to be a diesel mechanic to be in government class. He was never going to be elected to the state legislature. Why were they, were they forcing the kid two rows in front of me who was growing up on the family farm, who was going to inherit the family farm, who was going to be a businessman managing the, the corn, the soybeans, but is, is never going to run for governor of Iowa to be in government class. Because everybody sitting in that class, upon becoming 18 would become citizens in that government. And as good citizens, they had to understand how the government worked. That's really sort of the idea behind this polity series. You all who have been redeemed by Christ are now members of his body. You are citizens not of this world, but of another world, of another kingdom. And Christ is your head. Not your president, but your king. He's not elected, he's enthroned. And as good citizens, it's good for us to understand how do we live in light of that? How do we structure ourselves as his people? So that's the vision behind the polity series. We're citizens, and we want to be good citizens. 
And we saw last week that our polity is a Presbyterian polity. It's a form of church government that's best described as elder-led. It's sort of built upon the building blocks of elders leading and ruling. That means that the authority that Christ gives to the church resides in local elderships. It's the building block of the polity. Elders are gifted men that are recognized to be the theological, the teaching, the spiritual, the moral, the visionary, and pastoral leaders of the congregation. You see it in the three terms, that they're called to be elders. Other times they're called overseers. Sometimes they're called pastors. Able to teach. Able to discern doctrine, both what is true doctrine and what is false doctrine. And able to lead the people. That's what the elder is. Now we saw last week what elder rule looked like locally. It was not an exhaustive treatment, but it was an introduction to it. If you got, if you got sort of the itch for more, I'd encourage you to pick up the polity and read and see what the polity has to say about it. This week what we're going to do is consider not locally how elders lead, but extra-locally, so outside of the local church. How, in our polity, in this Presbyterian system, do elders continue to exhibit their office that they've been given by Christ? Well, they do that through governance in regional bodies. Now, for some folks who've kind of grown up in Presbyterianish systems, that sounds familiar. For others of you, you're thinking, huh? Regional bodies? You know, what is this? Well, Sometimes Presbyterians or Reformed people, people that kind of grew out of this polity from the Reformation, would call this regional body made up of elders a classis, if you're Dutch, or a presbytery, if you're Scottish or English. That's the regional system. In our polity, it's called the Regional Assembly of Elders. Really nice, succinct term, right? The Regional Assembly of Elders is the name of that regional body. Now, the Regional Assembly of Elders is made up of all the ordained elders of the region. So the Ray, as I'll call it for short, in the Presbyterian model, and this is important, is not a higher authority. It's a delegated authority. Does that make sense? It's not that the Regional Assembly of Elders is a higher authority than the local elderships. It's a delegated authority which means it derives its influence from the consent of the elders at the local level. So again, local elders and those elderships are the building blocks of the polity. And the regional body of elders derives its authority from the consent of those local elders to partner with those regional bodies. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So I'm going to hold off for a second. We've kind of jumped past the first primary question. Is it right to have any type of authority outside of the local church? Should there be any sort of authority that exists outside of a local church that a local church is accountable to? Is it good for local churches to have a formal accountability to others? Well, the answer to that in our polity is yes. And that's why in our first point this morning, we're going to see that our polity, in addition to being built around the office of elders, is also inherently interconnected. So our first point this morning is that this polity we have in this book of church order shows that our churches are interconnected churches. Now, to show you that, I want to go to the book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 4. And here we see the reason why we think it's important to be interconnected. So Ephesians chapter 4. Hear the holy and authoritative word of God. I, therefore, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one, with bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And drop down to verse 11. And He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you sense Paul's vision for the interconnected nature that all Christians are a part of one universal church? Verses 3 and 4 exhort us to maintain the unity of the Spirit, that there is one body, just as there is one Spirit. So, by the grace of God, We've been regenerated by the one Holy Spirit, right? Every believer in this room is now filled with the one Holy Spirit. That's the blessing of New Testament salvation. God breathes out His Spirit indiscriminately on all who are saved in Christ. But it's one Spirit that does this in the many individuals. The purpose of that is to bring us together into one body. As Paul asked the rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 13, Is Christ divided? Well, no. Christ obviously isn't divided. If you think he's divided, that's a Christological heresy. So don't believe that Christ is divided. The implication being, if Christ isn't divided, neither should his people be divided. Now, I think as modern Christians, we stumble over this. I know I have a tendency to stumble over it. We have a tendency to resist the unifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're sometimes too comfortable with the independent spirit of our day. We're sometimes too caught up in the independent spirit of our day. And that can affect how we consider even joining a local church. Why should I join a church? Isn't it good enough that I'm just saved? And I go to Starbucks and read my Bible a couple times a week on my own? It can also be reflected in a local church and their desire to partner with formerly other churches. According to Scripture, there's a fundamental organic unity. A fundamental organic unity that should characterize the church of Christ. Because Christ is fundamentally organically one. The Godhead, the Trinity, is fundamentally organically one. And so we're meant to pursue that individually. Don't just sit at Starbucks by yourself all week, every week. Be a part of, a member in partnership with a local church. And we're meant to pursue that corporately. Listen to how Ephesians 4.15 says it. So a few verses down from our passage. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. Into Christ. So there's this implication Paul's making. If you are growing, if you are maturing, if you are being sanctified, if you're a believer filled with the Spirit, that should be happening in your life. And if it is happening, this is the implication that will happen. As you're sanctified, you will grow into Christ, you will go into the head. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, 
joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you hear both the individual and corporate elements of that? Individually, to grow, to be sanctified, to conform more to the image of Christ, is to grow into Christ. Corporately, there are all these members that are members of one body. And that body shouldn't be an arm sitting over there and a leg across the room, a torso in another state. It should be held together as one body. That's that fundamental organic unity we see. So the godly impulse for individual Christians to join together with other believers also points us to a godly impulse for local churches to join together with other churches. Paul's vision, Jesus' vision, the biblical vision is that we should do everything, listen to this, everything we can to make visible the spiritual universal church. So Christ's body is one. There is this invisible body of believers, all true believers in Christ, living now and throughout the entire history of the church. When we get to heaven, everybody who's a part of that invisible body will be there. What Paul is saying, what our polity is saying, is we should do everything we can now as we live on this earth to give visible expression to that invisible body. That's why we call our polity an ecclesiastical union. It's a way of saying that we are a church that is unified together. We are a church made up of, made up of local churches and local elderships partnered together to give visible expression to our spiritual unity in Christ. Now that's a challenging thing, isn't it? It's one of the great challenges of the church at all times, but especially post-Reformation. The Reformation is an exciting period in the history of the world, but especially the history of the church. There's all sorts of amazing things happening. There's a, a recovery of the purity of the gospel, but there's also this breaking away from an unbiblical form of polity where the Pope sits at the head of the church. The question then is, how do we continue to express this visible unity? We hear the significance of it in John 17, that famous high priestly prayer of Jesus. John 17, 20-21, he says, I do not ask for these only, so not just the disciples with me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, for every person who will be a believer until Christ returns. What does he ask? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, is Jesus saying that it's possible to be saved and yet not a part of the universal invisible church? No. If you are saved, you are a part of the body of Christ. What he's saying is, what he's praying for is the recognition there's going to be a tendency because sin still exists in this world for us not to express visibly the unity we have spiritually. I pray that they would be one just as you, Father, and I are one. And then he says this really cool thing. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's a significant statement. It makes clear the way we demonstrate our unity serves as a substantial witness to the gospel's truth and its power. That unity should find expression 
in our governance and our mission. So, one of the greatest strengths of our polity is that it has ecclesiastical, here's, here's a new word for you maybe, interconnectedness. We're connected together. That it gives tangible evidence as well to interdependence. It's not just that we're interconnected, but we need to be interconnected. We need each other. We need other churches. And that we see this interconnectedness, interdependence of local congregations visible throughout Scripture. Adding weight to this interpretation of Scripture is the reality of how the early church carried this forward, this commitment to interdependence, even as they began to distance themselves from the apostolic office. So if you can imagine the situation, if the New Testament church believes, you know, the church in Corinth believes, you know, we are fundamentally on our own, left to ourselves. If that's really what they believe, we're separate from the church in Rome, we're separate from the church in Ephesus, separate from the church in Philippi, the church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch. Wouldn't you expect that when the apostles begin to leave the scene, being martyred for the faith, the apostles are this huge source of authority in the New Testament, right? As they should be. As they begin to disappear from the scene, wouldn't that imply that if there was inherent independence of the local churches, once the apostles leave, you would see independent churches establish themselves and express themselves? Instead, we have the opposite. There's such a sense of interdependence, of interconnectedness, that as the apostolic office begins to fade out of church history, you see churches continuing to say, we've got to find out a way to continue to express our interconnectedness, our interdependence. We're still a part of the one body. We've got to give testimony to it. The primacy of biblical doctrines, let me say this differently, it's primary that the church remain faithful to biblical doctrines. In other words, the primacy, what's most important, is not that the church be united. The tagline, unity, if that's all you hear from a church or denomination, probably means they're sacrificing some significant doctrines to maintain unity above all else. Unity is secondary to doctrinal purity. Doctrinal purity comes first. Jesus talks about expelling members from your midst. Paul talks about excluding immoral brothers. Get rid of false teachers. I don't care that you're all happy and getting along. You've got false teachers in your midst. Get rid of them. But that biblical, faithful, doctrinal foundation, the unity of belief, should also find expression in a unity of governance. So while we prioritize faithful doctrine, our faithful doctrine should find expression in a unified ecclesiology. Historically, Reformed theologians have talked not just about the gift of unity. Unity is a gift. It's a gift given to us by God, by the grace of His Spirit. They've not just talked about the gift. Reformed theologians would talk about the obligation and the calling of unity. That God's people and the church is obligated, is called to structure itself in such a way as to express its unity. Ecclesiastical unity is seen in the example of the New Testament. Everywhere we look, we see evidence of real expressed unity. 
See, the ministry of the apostles and local churches who viewed themselves as belonging to the greater whole connected through those apostles. We see churches working together, right, to finance missions, to supply leaders, to advance the gospel. There's an interdependence as as well as their interconnectedness. And then we see strong forms of doctrinal and moral accountability. When a church starts to drift, leaders and believers from other churches provide the voice of pressure vehicles of accountability to help bring them back. And it's not always just the apostles that do that. This anonymous author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians in danger of drift. You you can see it especially in Paul's magnum opus in the book of Romans, right? Romans is just jam-packed with truth. It doesn't say everything there is to say about the faith, but it says a lot. Well, it's written probably from Corinth to Rome. So Paul's in Corinth, and he's writing to Rome. You know what that shows us? Interconnectedness. It's during Paul's third missionary journey, so it's probably written about A.D. 57. And it's written to what started out as a Jewish church that now, as we can see in the letter of Romans, is both Jewish and Gentile. So Paul is writing and talking about these Jewish-Gentile relationships because there's Jews and Gentiles in the body. They're trying to figure out how do we live together? Well, In Acts 18.2, we read about the expulsion of Jewish Christians from Rome. And historically, that happened in A.D. 49. Okay, So eight years prior, the Jewish believers are expelled from the imperial city. The Gentile believers are still there. Now Paul's writing, and evidently the Jewish believers are back in the city. So there's a growing church that's now Jewish and Gentile believers. And in this church in Rome, it's numerous congregations in the Roman capital. No one looks at that letter and thinks at this time, eight years later, this is just one little house church. This is multiple congregations. Isn't it interesting how Paul addresses those multiple local churches? He addresses them as one unified body. The theological issues, he doesn't doesn't hone in on, and to the house church governed by Frank, you need to figure out this circumcision thing. Because you're kind of giving the shaft to your Gentile buddies. And to the house church that's governed by Harry. You Gentiles can't get so arrogant, you wild olive branches, because you can get cut off. But that's not the vision. He writes to the church in Rome as a unified whole. There's no idea in Paul's mind of separate churches. There are individual congregations, yes, but they are part of one body that's inherent in the unity of Christ. So he writes in Romans 12.4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Inherently interconnected. Interdependent. Now that interconnectedness, what we're going to see this morning finds expression in a couple ways in our polity. We're going to look at this morning is how it finds expression in the regional assembly of elders, what other Presbyterian bodies would call the classis or the presbytery. We call it the regional assembly of elders. It's our second point here. We're going to walk through what is that. Well, the BCO, the Book of Church Order, combines the dual commitments of interdependency and elder rule in a Presbyterian system of representation. So, There's this region that exists, and it's made up of elders that represent all the churches that are part of the region. Are you following with me? So the region just doesn't get randomly picked. It's made up of the elders 
that represent the churches that are part of the region. The partnership of our union is expressed in these decentralized regions. And those regions are responsible for carrying forward mission, for extending care, and helping with accountability. We've got an illustration that helps to show this. Can we put the illustration up? Get the illustration up on the screen. The illustration shows you here a real rough sketch of what our polity looks like. Now, next week, we're going to look at the CE, the Council of Elders, which is the most extra-local body that we have. But what we're going to look at this morning is the relationship between the C, the local church and its elderships, and the R, the regions. And there's a relationship. You see it represented by those arrows going back and forth. They influence each other. The region is made up of all the churches in a given geographical area. And those churches bind together for the purpose of mission and care and accountability. They delegate authority to the committees of the region. And likewise, the region helps those churches. Now, the whole point of this is it shows that authority grows out of the local elderships. This is not a top-down system. It's not the council of elders at the top, and then the regions, and then the local churches. That's not how this polity works. It's not a hierarchy. It's not Erastian. It's not a parachurch organization. This is an ecclesiastical body. The representative nature of the polity extends to every extra-local position in the polity. It certifies that every decision that's made by the Council of Elders in the middle, one ordained elder representing every church, two if you're a big church over 500, every decision of the Council of Elders, every decision of the Executive Committee, the Executive Committee is, is nominated by the regional leaders, every decision of the leadership team, the leadership team is commissioned by the Council of Elders and the Executive Committee to help us carry forward our mission. Every decision from every one of those extra-local bodies originates from and is tied to the authority that you see in the local church and in local elderships. So it's not top-down, it's bottom-up. This also means we don't regard the local church as fundamentally autonomous. Independent or Baptist churches argue against the robust interdependence we're describing in this book of church order. But there can be a danger to total autonomy. Literally, what does the word autonomy mean? It means you're a law to yourself. And besides my opinion that this fails Paul's test of the question, is Christ divided? If a church is utterly autonomous, totally autonomous, it leaves itself unmoored from accountability. Now, I don't want to create a caricature here. There are good independent churches. One of the best churches I've ever been associated with, I was a member of Bethlehem Baptist Church, is one of the finest, healthiest churches you will ever see. I would commend any person here to be a member of that church. It's congregational, view itself as independent. So I, I don't want to paint the picture that there's no such thing as a healthy, independent church. There are many, and the best ones, churches like Bethlehem, seek to live out some sort of accountability with other churches. Because they realize it's dangerous to be utterly a law to oneself. Healthy congregationalists from church history, Owen, John Owen would be a congregationalist. He would drive in some ways modern congregationalists mad though. In fact, Presbyterian scholars 
church historians looking back would say, hey, I'd, I'd be happy to, to call Owen a Presbyterian. His sense of accountability for the local church was so massive and deep that in some ways he almost seemed more Presbyterian than he did congregational. There's even debates, maybe he had a Presbyterian conversion at the end of his life. I don't know. All that to say, the best, healthiest congregationalists recognize that total independence from the rest of the body of Christ is a dangerous thing. And they also recognize that no church is omnicompetent. In other words, no church has all the gifts, all the leaders, all the resources to completely fulfill the Great Commission on their own. I don't care how big your church is, how beautiful the building, how well-known your pastor, how many books he's published, how rocking your music ministry, how many missionaries you're supporting. I don't care what all that is. That church is not omnicompetent. That church, left to itself by itself, will not alone fulfill the Great Commission. At the end of the day, however, some churches take autonomy to the point that it means there's no accountability with even a degree of authority in their local churches. Now, when I say I was a member of Bethlehem, Bethlehem was a part of the Baptist General Conference. And when I was actually attending Bethlehem and when I was at Bethel University, which is a school for that denomination, there was this raging debate within this collection of churches, this denomination, between open theism and reformed theology. So you had some people that were holding to orthodox positions on the sovereignty of God and God's foreknowledge, that God does know the future, that God does ordain the future. And you had some churches in the minority that were holding to unorthodox heresies that God does not know the future. Well, one of the weaknesses of this independent system was that there was no real way for the orthodox churches to hold those other churches accountable. They tried. There were debates. There was all sorts of means by which they tried to put pressure on those churches. But at the end of the day, those open theist churches were independent, fully autonomous churches, able to do whatever they pleased. And they had really strong, articulate pastors. And because they were great leaders and they were great preachers, they were able to convince their flock, this is true, it's good enough for us. And so they were insulated from any real form of accountability. Within the denomination, you had churches that were complementarian and churches that were egalitarian, that were, that were feminist, that promoted women as pastors. And there was no ability for the feminists to bring accountability as they would like to against the complementarian churches or for the complementarian churches to bring accountability to the other churches. And it left this really strange, fractured dynamic. Rick, our, our regional leader up in Minneapolis, was a part of Bethlehem. He, he graduated from Bethel Seminary like me and spent years seeking to be hired in one of these other churches. The only form of accountability they had is they wouldn't hire him because he was associated with Bethlehem and he was too conservative. But the denomination was so fractured, was so disconnected, they couldn't actually live out partnership. That's why a regional assembly of elders is important and why it carries great potential. The increased regionalization of the polity means that extra-local functions that most closely affect local churches, so the things that happen extra-locally that most closely affect providence, those things now happen in closer proximity. It's not some committee way off somewhere else. A lot of those decisions are happening now with elders from within our region. Elders that your elders know. Does that make sense? decisions that affect providence aren't handed off to that distant entity. They're rooted in our assembly of elders. That's a good way to think of it. This regional assembly of elders is our body. It has great ownership over the mission and care of its represented churches. 
So it's not this idea that it's a distant or outside. Providence, our church, should view the regional assembly of elders as her own ecclesiastical body. The structures as her own limbs. They derive their authority from our local authority. So what is the regional assembly of elders? What does it do? What's it responsible for? Well, if a region is like 5 to 20 churches in the polity. That's how it's made up. Ideally, that have close geographical proximity. Even ideally, sometimes within one state. Now, our region is not like that in either regard. Not close geographical proximity at this point, and not within one state. I will throw out there, it's probably a lot easier for our church and our pastors to get together with the church in Minneapolis than it was for a lot of the churches in Paul's day who might have been drastically closer geographically to get together. But we aren't totally close. So what does that mean? Well, it means our region is considered the frontier, which means our region has a priority for planting churches. That's a really cool thing. You know how you get more geographical proximity? You plant churches close to home. You plant churches closer than seven hours away in the Twin Cities. You look at places like Liberty and Lawrence, and I'll even say it, Manhattan, Columbia. You look at places like Manhattan, Columbia, and Lawrence and say, they need the gospel. (laughs) So you plant churches there, and you build a region with geographical proximity. That's what you do. That region is a central way that the local churches connect with sovereign grace. That's the primary way that providence will connect with sovereign grace is through our region. It represents support and accountability and partnership and mission. Now, in the past, most of what the region did fell to the regional leader, to one guy. So Rick was our regional leader, right? Well, all the stuff that's supposed to happen in the region fell to him, and it was a lot, and it was hard for those guys to do it all. Well, now in the new polity, there's more that's given to the region because they want to decentralize authority. They want to decentralize responsibility. They want to push it down, make it closer to the church that affects. Well, that puts more on the plate of that one guy. So in the polity, they say instead of that one guy doing everything, we're going to create bodies within the region that help him, that assist him, that are actually primarily responsible for carrying these things out. So there's a regional leader, but also committees made up with the elders within these regions to help carry this out. So we see... Four central roles of the regions. Follow with me here. We're interconnected, first point, right? We are inherently together, expressing visibly the spiritual unity we have in Christ. And that interconnection, extra-locally, finds its first expression in the regional assembly of elders, the presbyterian idea of a presbytery or a classis. Well, what are the four functions of our regional assembly of elders? First, the region assists in the ordination of elders. Now, the region doesn't do everything related to ordination, but it plays a crucial role. Each region has an ordination committee. This ordination committee is made up of the most theologically gifted and grounded pastors in the region, the guys who are most able to discern doctrine. And there's a reason for that. The importance of this committee is massive. That ordination committee evaluates and approves elders for the churches in the region. So to become an ordained elder within our region, you'll have to go through the ordination committee. Now, we talked about some of the inherent dangers and weaknesses of a totally autonomous church. There's also some inherent dangers to being interconnected. We're tied to other churches. 
That means if other churches that were tied to are healthy, it's an awesome thing. It's a symbiotic relationship where we get great benefit. But if those other churches were tied to run off into liberalism, it makes partnership incredibly difficult, even dangerous. You see it in bodies like the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA. And I'm not really trying to pick on anyone with this. The, the PCUSA, it's a Presbyterian body. That's even a better example. A Presbyterian body, a body representing our polity. Huge Presbyterian church that now ordains practicing homosexuals into the pastorate. Well, if you don't have your ducks in order in terms of your polity, you have no way to safeguard the theology of your denomination. And now there's churches within those denominations who are agonizing over the fact that, what do we do? We, we are connected to these wayward churches, and for some reason our polity is not allowing us to bring the accountability we need to. Well, this harkens back to the importance and, significant, and significance of ordination. Any polity that carries extra-local entailments, so any polity that says we should be connecting with, each, with other churches outside of this, outside of us, and labors for expressed unity, it is treacherous if that polity, if that ecclesiastical union, that denomination doesn't have a balanced commitment to accountable orthodoxy. We must promote and protect doctrinal fidelity in our ecclesiastical union. We are going to be connected to these churches. So I care what they teach. I care what they believe. I care what gets preached from the pulpit. I care the kind of lives that they're living. The prior commitment to elder rule and a representative government means that our doctrine and our holiness will only be as faithful as our elders. There's a twofold accountability there. There's an accountability to our congregations. Be Bereans. Study the word. Give counsel. Listen. Be mindful. But it's also a calling for the other elders in that ecclesiastical union. The long-term health of our denomination, of our union, humanly speaking, will run through our elders. So knowing this, an ordination system of shared accountability between local elderships and the region is wise. It's prudent. No, hear this, no responsible eldership, no, no, no eldership worth its salt, no local church would submit to a representative system if they didn't have a stake in the quality of elder invited into that system. You are insane to be a part of a representative government if you don't have some means of accountability and safeguarding the kinds of elders who are also invited into that government. Those men are going to play a role in the doctrine of the denomination you belong to. You have to have a means of accountability. So there's a shared responsibility between the local and extra-local elders to ensure the qualification and sound doctrine of any elder being ordained. That protects the semi-autonomous nature of the local church. Local churches, I don't believe, are totally autonomous, but they are semi-autonomous. There is a degree in which each local church is a local expression of a complete church. They shouldn't have dictates from far off. Ordination, we see this, this partnership, we see it in the fact that ordination still originates locally. So that, this is what it means. The region isn't ever going to sit there and, and come to Providence and say, you know, we, we came a couple weeks ago 
and we were really on a scouting mission. And while we were there, you know, the four elders from the regional ordination committee, we were hanging out, and we saw these two guys, and, and we had a 20-minute conversation with them, and we think we should ordain them as elders. And then we're going to ordain them and take them through the process, and we'd like to install them then as elders in your church. And the people at Providence and the elders of Providence said, <coughs> actually, we've got some issues with those guys. This polity isn't set up where those regional elders can initiate the process and then install whoever they want within our churches. Ordination initiates locally. The local church, the local elders, evaluate the men gifted and called to be elders. They help to equip them. They help to train them. Then they put them forward before the ordination committee, and that ordination committee, the representative body, tests them. An oral examination and a written examination. If they pass that, it goes to a vote of the regional assembly of elders. If they pass by simple majority, the other elders in the region say, yes, we affirm the doctrine, we affirm what we've heard about their character from the local body, They've passed that step, that crucial piece that has to happen in the ordination process. Then ordination concludes, it terminates locally. So it starts locally, assess men, raise them up, put them forward to be tested. Once they're tested and voted and confirmed, it comes back and concludes locally. The local church is the church that installs these ordained men into their office. So the region doesn't tell us who our elders are going to be. The region doesn't reach down and, and pick and choose who it wants to be elders. The local church initiates. The local church finalizes. Now, we're in a, in a strange situation, a strange period right now, because the polity is changing. It's just gotten ratified. It's, it's changing to a new system. And so, like, for instance, Dave right now is not ordained. He's our elder, but in the old system, there wasn't this extra-local representative nature, so Dave hadn't been ordained yet. It's actually not all that uncommon. There's lots of churches out there whose polities don't always require every elder to be ordained. In our polity, we think it's wise, because of the representative nature, to put forward ordination for all elders, make sure there's an equal playing field. But Dave and, and, and several other elders are in a similar situation of kind of being in the gray area between the polity's ratification and the ordination committee being formed. We haven't even formed our ordination committee for our region yet. So it's going to take a little bit for us to get to that point where the ordination committee exists and ordination can move forward. So we're in the midst of that process. It's kind of like after the Constitutional Convention. We've got to go out and get this thing ratified in all the states, and they've got to figure out how we're going to... It's not like, oh, Constitutional Convention, now we've got a Constitution, and boom, United States of America, just like we see it today. You've got the Federalist Papers, you got all sorts of stuff being written and going on. But we're kind of in that midst right now. All of that to say, it's good that there's this dual relationship. Ordination is the vanguard of the church's holiness and moral purity, and especially its doctrinal fidelity. This is a safeguard for all levels of sovereign grace. From the local pulpit, where the sheep are fed, to the council of elders, where the orthodoxy of our standards is maintained. Second, the region will provide critical accountability. So we're still in those. What are the four central roles of the ray? First is ordination. The second is it provides adjudication. Adjudication? What? Adjudication is the big fancy word for it provides a means of hearing cases, of adjudicating, of judging in matters. So each region will also nominate a judicial review committee. This is a very Presbyterian type thing made up of ordained elders, and these men, so if you're, you can imagine, 
Your ordination committee is your most theologically adept guys. Your judicial review committee will be your kind of wisest, most discerning guys in matters of, of doctrine and character. They're guys that don't get swayed by the need to be popular. You can make a tough decision if they have to. The judicial review committee is a critical point of accountability. We can have the best ordination standards in the world. We can have the most robust, significant process of ordination to make sure the guys who get ordained and installed as elders are the cream of the crop. But that's only on the front end, right? If we also don't have a process of adjudication to make sure that those men continue to be held accountable to what they profess to believe, to the purity of their lives, it's powerless. Our ability to safeguard the purity of our lives and our doctrine in our elders is only as strong as the systems of adjudication that provide accountability. The great strength of a Presbyterian system is its ability to practice the witness and holiness of the church and her officers, both locally and extra-locally. Now again, this still recognizes the integrity of the local church. This is a circumscribed, delimited authority, which basically means these judicial review committees aren't like the Supreme Court. They don't have the power to interpret law, and how that law gets interpreted has to become the law of the land in part because none of our judicial review committees have any armies. They don't have the ability to enforce law, right? So there's a natural circumscribed part of this, a delimited nature. They can provide accountability, they can provide discipline, but they also don't step into everything the local church does. There's very carefully laid out aspects of what the ordination committee, what the judicial review committee can look at in the life of a local church. They can't, you can't bring charges against another elder in a region. We're going to bring charges against that church in Bloomington. Because you know what? They used a mandolin in worship on Sunday. Can you believe it? I know that they are only supposed to use a guitar and a bass and a drum, not a mandolin. We are bringing charges against them. Now that sounds ridiculous, right? But there would be less ridiculous examples of people overstepping the grounds for that. And so there's very careful, careful areas that limit what the Judicial Review Committee can examine. You can't examine the color of your carpet. That's what the Judicial Review Committee does. It's a process that prevents the destructive nature of a totally self-sufficient eldership. If you've got an eldership that thinks it's totally self-sufficient, has no need for any sort of outside help and counsel and accountability, it can be a dangerous thing. It's necessary for two reasons. No church is omnicompetent. No eldership is omnicompetent, right? Sometimes, man, you just really love the four other guys. You really enjoy them. And, and the one guy that's drifting into theological heresy is actually the sharpest, most articulate guy on staff. He's the, he's the sharpest elder. He's the sharpest, most theologically attuned guy in the church. And so even though the people might desire to bring accountability, he can just dominate every argument. And pretty soon the eldership and the church are convinced, we, we think this is right. Our most persuasive guy has persuaded us. Well, no church is omnicompetent. It needs the accountability of other churches and other gifted elders to say, no, that, that's not accurate. That's not right. We see this need for outside assistance in times of moral and doctrinal crisis throughout the New Testament, especially in 1 Corinthians. Paul believed that Christians had the ability 
and the obligation to adjudicate, to make formal decisions or judgments and disputes within the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Implication being, we have the ability to adjudicate matters pertaining to life and doctrine. And second, there's a biblical recognition. What does sin do? It deceives. It clouds. We have an incredible proclivity to fail to see the nature of our own sin. And that doesn't just affect us individually, it affects us corporately. And I really love Elder Joe Schmo. And so I know what he's doing in his life is wrong morally. But I love that brother. And so I'm willing to look the other way. I really love member Sally Q. And even though she is living in sin, it would just be too awkward to really practice church discipline. It would just be too awkward to actually hold accountability. Well, the representative accountability that we see in our polity is a great help in rescuing individuals. And that's the key, in rescuing, in restoring individuals and churches from error. So when a church or an eldership falls into sin or doctrinal error, the region handles that discipline. So if a church in our region starts spouting open theism, another church in our region could bring charges of doctrinal error against them. We see this in the PCA. Recently there's a scandal over a thing you maybe most of you haven't heard of called the New Perspective on Paul. It's sort of a warping of the nature and understanding of justification. So Presbyterian body, the PCA, you know, they're orthodox, they're conservative, really reflect us in many ways. It started growing up in their midst, this, this drift into the New Perspective. Well, because of this Presbyterian polity they had set up, they were able to bring correction through their adjudication in courts that cut off the air before it spread too far. It brought clarity and warning to all their churches. This is outside the bounds of biblical understanding of justification. And in a couple instances, it actually led to churches being expelled from the denomination. It's what we see happening in 2 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported. Remember Paul's language? You got such crazy immorality, such crazy sexual sin going on in your midst. It's not even practiced in the world. What does Paul go on to say to them? Expel the immoral brother. Adjudicate this matter. Judge the man. And then expel him. Now, as we said, the regional assembly of elders and the council of elders, they're they're judicatories, they're judicatories. So the Judicial Review Committee, the Sovereign Grace Court of Appeals, they don't have carte blanche authority to reach into every business of the local church. I want to say that again. And there's a process of appeals. That's really helpful. If Sally Q gets accused of church discipline, gets run through church discipline, and feels like, I got wronged, man. 
she can appeal to that judicial review committee and say, this was wrong. And they will look into the, into the case. If an elder gets, gets fired for a reason of moral impurity or a reason of, of some sort of doctrinal incompetence, he can appeal to the judicial review committee and they can look into the matter and say, you know, you're, they were right. <laughs> Your church was right. You're, you're off this you're off the trail on this doctrine. But they might also say, you know, we think you did this man wrong. Now, it's delimited authority. So the, the Judicial Review Committee can't say, you know, this elder's right. The local eldership, the local church is wrong. He's not off the rails theologically here. What they can't do is then say, so now we tell you, you have to have him back as a pastor. You didn't want him. The eldership voted him out. The congregation had no support for him. But too bad. He's now your pastor. They can't do that. What they can do is say, we think he was done wrong. We uphold his ordination. We uphold that he's still doctrinally capable and competent. And so he's now available to go to another church. Does that make sense? It's a helpful layer in which it's circumscribed and delimited. Do the last two briefly. Third, these regional elders, one of their other core purposes, is that they help to plant churches. There's going to be a church planting committee within our region that works in concert with the director of church planting and mission for sovereign grace. So now that means we get to play an extra close role in how churches get planted. It's, you know, we think of building our region and developing geographical proximity. Well, our elders and our churches now get to think and strategize together. As we look at the Midwest in our region, we say, you know, what are strategic cities? Is Des Moines a strategic city? Is Liberty a strategic city? We're actually going to be planting a church in Sioux Falls. It's really cool. It's actually happening right now. They're going to be going public soon, having their public launch. So we'll get to look at them and say, okay, we got a church in Sioux Falls. Is Omaha, like the bridge between Sioux Falls and Kansas City, right there on I-29, is that a strategic place to plant a church? Can we, can we plant in Omaha and then plant in Lincoln and plant in parts of Iowa? We get to think strategically like that at the regional level now with a committee that's devoted to thinking missionally about how to do this. It's a really cool thing. Fourth, a central function of our region is to provide practical care and fellowship to the other churches, to its pastors, first of all, to make sure that our pastors who are going to hold each other accountable are thinking together theologically, are building together relationally, so that we know each other. The more you know someone, the more you can hold them accountable, right? But also so that our people grow together. Here's a great example of how this is going to happen. I think this is hopefully the first of many such examples. This next year, we just talked about this on the retreat, there's going to be a regional women's retreat in Minneapolis. So next spring, they're going to bring in Lydia Brownback, gifted author, gifted teacher to the Minnesota church. We're going, to, we're going to tell you about the date. You guys can plant it on your calendars. It's going to be in the spring. You guys get to go up there. You're going to hear world-class teaching, and you're going to get to fellowship with all the other ladies in our region. Build relationship. Increase that sense of interconnectedness. The regions also serve to safeguard our doctrinal standards. The Council of Elders passes, affirms any change to the, the statement of faith, our doctrinal standard, right? But that can't get passed unless it goes to the regions, and three-fourths of the regions also affirm it by a 51% majority. So every region has to vote and has to pass by a simple majority within that region, and it has to pass three-fourths of the region before it becomes new doctrine in our statement of faith. That's helpful. 
No, like, outside entity way over somewhere else is going to say, you know what? You know, now we have looked at things and we have decided we will no longer be complementarian. We will be egalitarian. It'll have to go through a massive process to make sure that there is accountability from the pastors and signing off on the theological truthfulness of any additional doctrine. All that to say, that's the region. That's the extra-local interconnectedness, interdependence, partnership in ministry. The whole purpose of that goes back, though, to Ephesians 4. Why do we do all this? Because Paul is eager that we would maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's why we do it. We do it to glorify the name of Jesus. Conclude here, real briefly, the words of the hymn by the Gettys. It's a worshipful song that I think expresses what should be at the heart of a polity. Polities don't create panaceas. They don't create utopian worlds where sin just doesn't exist anymore and there's never any trouble or difficulty. But it's meant to create something where the people of God can be on mission for worshiping and glorifying Christ. They write this. Think of how our polity can give voice to this. Come, people of the risen King, who delight to bring Him praise. Come all and tune your hearts to sing to the morning star of grace. From the shifting shadows of the earth, we lift our eyes to Him. Get the corporate sense? Where steady arms of mercy reach to gather children in. Rejoice, rejoice, let every tongue rejoice. One heart, one voice. O church of Christ, rejoice. Come those whose joy is morning sun and those weeping through the night. Come those who tell of battles won and those struggling in the fight. For His perfect love will never change and His mercies never cease, but follow us through all our days with the certain hope of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, let every tongue rejoice. One heart, one voice. O church of Christ, rejoice. Come, young and old from every land, men and women of the faith. Come those with full or empty hands, find the riches of His grace. Over all the world His people sing, shore to shore we hear them call, the truth that cries from every age, our God is all in all. That's what our polity hopes in some small way to pursue. Would you bow your heads?